Ehud, and I just want to make sure I'm on, I'm on camera so you guys can see me there. Let me get rid of this thing here. Okay. Um, I'm trying something a little different this morning. I'm trying to, uh, and I'm still not on, I'm trying to utilize, okay, we'll try that. Utilize the camera in the back. Okay, hopefully that's, that's better. Just to uh, get a better picture of the uh, front of the church, kind of like giving more of a panoramic view of the front for those that are looking. Just a quick one word wrap before you start recording, Gloria. I think I'm gonna do this at this point. Uh, I wanna talk to you about another uh, person that was unlikely that God would use. There's no book named after him and we actually get his name too, and his name is Mordecai or Mordecai. Some people pronounce the uh, pr pronounce it with four syllables, but I, I I'll refer to him as Mordecai. He was a cousin of Esther. Um, a great a, a, a great trivia question would be what was Esther's Jewish name? Because we know Esther, we have a book named the Book of Esther, but that was actually her Babylonian name. Same with. Daniel and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, uh, we get their Babylonian names, but we also get their Hebrew names. In the book of Esther, it's just the opposite. The book is actually named after her Babylonian name, which was Esther. Her actual name, the Bible gives us in Esther chapter 2, and we, we, we learn her name in verse 7, it was Hadassah, H-A-D-A-S-S-A-H. So remember that, if you ever hear, uh, if someone ever asks you who was Hadassah, well, now you know. Hadassah was also Queen Esther. So let me just read this to you really quickly, and we'll just read these three verses and go right ahead. Uh, chapter 2 of Esther, verse 5. We're talking about Mordecai, a uh, man living a faithful life. It says, at that time there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. By the way, uh, Benjamin something was something that we learned about last week because Ehud was from the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin means son of my right hand. Isn't it amazing he was left-handed, son of my right hand. Son of my right hand, and that's the same tribe that King Saul was from. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. I think numerically it was the smallest of the 12 tribes. And he was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. This is verse 5 of Esther chapter 2. Verse 6 says, His family had been among those who King Jerachim of Judah had been exiled from Ut Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And we know who King Nebuchadnezzar is because he was the dude that tried to get Daniel and the three Hebrew boys to bow to the image. He's the one who had Daniel ordered to throw him, thrown in the lion's den. God delivered him. He's the one who the Hebrew boys would not bow their knee to the image, and he cast them into the fiery furnace, which was heated seven times hotter, and they did not perish, nor was the smell of smoke on their clothes. So Nebuchadnezzar is a popular guy. God made him go crazy. He lived out in the field like a beast. Uh, for a long period of time. So this guy's name is pretty popular in scripture as a, definitely a villain. It says that uh, in verse seven, 
that this man had a very beautiful and lovely cousin. This is Mordecai. He had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who also was called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. So um, three quick things that I think about when I think about Esther. I'm sorry, when I think about Mordecai. Esther, there, you know, you could write... <laughs> You could write an entire book about Esther. Oh, I'm sorry. There's been a book written about Esther. E Esther was amazing, um, not only because of her beauty and her wisdom and the fact that she was a queen and all those good things. What made Esther so amazing is that the book is a small book. It only has 167 verses. But what's unique about the book of Esther is that the name of God is never mentioned in the context of the book. The name of God is not mentioned in Esther, but the power and presence, the presence rather, and the providence and the sovereignty of God is all through the book of Esther. You can't say there is no God when you read Esther because you see God's deliverance. A nation, a nation that was on the brink of genocide, a nation that was about to be exterminated from the face of the earth, a nation that was on the face of being ex ex essentially eliminated as to what Hitler tried to do uh, back in the 30s uh, and 40, the 30s, uh, this had been tried by Haman five, 450 years, almost 500 years before Jesus. He tried the same thing to completely eradicate the Jews from the face of the earth. Isn't it amazing that both, both their names start with an H? Haman failed and Hitler failed. God intervened by using Esther and her cousin Mordecai to thwart the plan of Haman to exterminate the Jews. And, and God also brought about deliverance uh, to Israel in, in, more, in, mo in modern times as well. So I see, when I think of this guy, I see three C's. Three things come to mind. Number one, I see compassion, which is something I think we can learn. What can we learn from Mordecai? Uh, Mordecai, We can learn compassion. I see in Esther chapter 2, verse 11, it says, And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Because she had been brought into the king's harem to be selected and evaluated as pre uh, getting her ready to be perhaps the next queen of Babylon because the former queen, Vashti, had rebelled and she was expelled. And so don't know if she was killed or not, but she, was, she lost her title because she would not be abused and made into a spectacle in front of the king and his men. Good on her, good on her women's rights, fight, fighting for social justice and respect way back then in the Old Testament, 500 years before Jesus. So ladies, ladies, minorities, black people, white people, whoever, the fight for social justice has been going on a long time, as, as far back as the book of Genesis, but certainly here in Esther, 500 years before Jesus, this lady was just refusing to be, you know, turned into a spectacle and would not allow the king to take 
her dignity, even if he would try to take her life, which maybe he did. We don't know. Uh, but I, I, look, I look at Mordecai and I say, wow, he was checking on his cousin every day. Compassion is looking out for those and being a part of helping those that may not be able to help themselves. And young, perhaps I've read, she could have been as young as 16 uh, at this time that she was starting her evaluation to become queen. Esther was a young girl, lost her parents, essentially an orphan, being raised by her older cousin. And he was compassionate and looking after her every day, pacing in front of the women's quarters to wait for a lady to come out so that he could inquire, how is Esther doing? What's the status of Esther? Is she okay? Is she safe? Is she healthy? Is she eating right? Is she being treated properly? Compassion, what a beautiful thing. God order, he, he, he rewards us for compassion. He rewards us for looking out for others, looking out for those that may not be able to look out for themselves. Matter of fact, I love what James says in James chapter one. He says that compassion is so important that he says that pure religion in James 1, pure religion, he defines religion and prefaces with the word pure as to differentiate it from religion in general. He says real religion or pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, that you look out for the widows and the orphans in their affliction. So true religion, pure religion is looking out for the weakest members, the most uncared for, cast aside members of our society, widows and orphans. And what do we see Mordecai doing? Looking out for his orphaned cousin who lost, perhaps both of her parents were lost in the exile when the Babylonians invaded uh, Israel. Maybe she was, they were lost in, in sickness. We don't, the Bible doesn't tell us how she lost both parents, but she lost both parents at a young age and good on Mordecai for looking out for his younger cousin and taking care of her. Compassion, that's one thing we learned from his life. That automatically just makes him a hero in my heart because he's following the scripture and he's following God. And I see number two, I see courage. And here's what it says in Esther, if you open your Bibles to Esther chapter two, verse uh, chapter 3, rather, verses 2 and 3, here's what it says. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Esther chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Esther would not bow to another man. We are only to bow our knee to God. The three Hebrew boys would not bow to an image. Mordecai would not bow to another man. All worship, as Sister Picard just so beautifully sang, all worship and all glory and all of our hallelujahs belong to him, belong to the Lord only. Not another man, not a king, not a president, not an official, not a government officer, but all of our hallelujahs all of our praise, all of our worship, all of the glory belongs to the Lord and he's unwilling to share and Mordecai was unwilling to, com 
to commit or unwilling to basically give in, capitulate to Haman, even though he was a government official. Because bowing down and worship belongs to God only. And the Lord says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One more see I love about this guy named Mordecai from the Old Testament. In Esther chapter 4, verse 14, it says, if you'll turn over one more chapter to 414, it says, for if you, this, this is probably the verse that most people know. Matter of fact, there's a song that's in the, for certainly in the black church, I don't know who else sings it, but there's this song we used to sing when I was a kid, if I perish, I will perish but I'm going to see the king. Does anyone remember that song? Okay. All right. So you guys weren't coming to choir rehearsal back then in the early 60s. Shame on you guys. Uh, no, we used to sing this song, If I Perish, I'm Going to See the King. And it, it, it comes from this verse, no doubt, in Esther 4.14. For if you keep silent at this time, this is Esther instructing his young cousin, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. In other words, he was letting her know that, listen, you're a Jew too. And if the Jews are going to be exterminated, you get exterminated too. You may have been concealing your Jewish heritage and your Hebrew background up until now. And so was Mordecai, by the way. But the truth is going to come out. And if the Jews are expunged, you will be expunged with them. So you can step up or not, but God's going to do what God has to do. God's will will go forth. God's purposes will be accomplished. Amen? Remember that? Remember in the book of Job, uh, the, uh, actually it's verse 42. Let's just hold your finger there and ask her for a minute. Actually, Job is the next book over. Um, just turn over to Job right quick. I want you to see something in verse 42. Just popped in my head, just talking about that. Reminded me of this great quote by Job that some of you probably remember because we've talked about it here for a long time. Uh, Job chapter 42. This, is, uh, this was after, uh, remember Job gave his great speech where he was saying, boy, I just, you know, I got this question for God and I got this complaint and he was, you know, just really barking uh, back to God about all he had been through and was thinking that this was just, you know, somewhat unfair. And, boy, if I could just get an audience to God, I would just love to tell him a few things. Respectfully, but I would certainly love to share a few things. And so God gave him that opportunity to say, hey, Job, is that you out here talking? Chapter 37 gives us the story and tells us all the way through chapter 41. He says, uh, pull up a chair. Let's wrap for a minute. He said, where were you? Where were you when I separated the waters from the waters above and the waters below? Where were you when I separated the night from the day? Where were you when I created the hippopotamus? Where were you when I took the morning dew and had it come on the grass and evaporate during the sun of the day? Do you understand the workings of the snow and the treasures that are in the snow? And I looked that up once. 
just found out that all of the things that are in the snow, the various nitrites and the various minerals that come from snow and how important it is to our hydrological cycle and how important it is to our food chain. So God just gives Job these 40 questions, so to speak, and he really laid it on him from chapters 37 to 41. And so God finally took a rest, I guess he said, the defense rest. Now, Job, you can speak if you want to. And Job made these amazing statements in chapter 42. He's really conciliatory, really apologetic, proclaiming God's goodness. There's only six, six verses that he speaks here, but he says this lovely thing here in chapter 42, uh, uh, verse 1. Actually, verse 2 tells it, but Job, verse 1 lets us know that Job is talking. And Job answered the Lord and said, this is Job 42.1. Verse 2 is the key point. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isn't that beautiful? That God can do whatever he wants. That none of God's purposes will be thwarted. And that's basically what, uh, there's, there's more, but I'll, in the interest of time, I'll let you read it at home. Job 42, 1 through 6. But that's essentially what Mordecai is saying to Esther. Look, you can either step up and request an audience with the king, and uh, of course, he was asking her to essentially risk her life because the way it works is if the king, in this particular case, if the king didn't call for you, if the king didn't request an audience with you specifically at a specific time, if you weren't on the king's calendar and you went in to see him, punishment was usually by death. So she said, that's when she made the amazing statement that we all know, well, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to see the king. Because if I don't go, God will raise up someone else that will go, and I may perish anyway. So good on her. And so Joseph, uh, Mordecai makes this amazing statement, uh, and he says to her in Esther, back, back to Esther chapter 4, verse 14, and who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows that God have not brought you? I'm talking to you. You that are listening online. You that are listening on site. Who knows that God haven't brought you to whatever it is you're going through in your life right now for such a time as this? That God's purposes are being executed. That God is at work. Don't ever think that things are coincidental or things are accidental or you've messed up and it's irreparable and that God can't fix it or you, get, you can't fix it or this is an impossible situation. Nothing escapes God's perusal. Nothing escapes God's vision. If it came, God ordered it. God ordained it. And his purposes will not. We just read Job 42. His purposes, ladies and gentlemen, will not be thwarted. God will get it done. He chooses to use us, but he will get it done with us or without us. He'll get it done to us, through us, or he'll get it done in spite of us. But God's purposes will be accomplished. Amen. Amen. So I said in closing to leave you with four things that you can take with you, the action, action steps that you can put to work in your life, how you walk this out. What can I learn, Pastor Will, from the life of Mordecai? You said that Mordecai is one of those guys who's an unsung hero. He's, uh, God uses him in an unlikely way. He was not a person who, whose name 
it appears in a book of the Bible as a chapter, I mean, as a writer of the Bible. He was not a preacher. He wasn't an evangelist. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a leader. He, well, he did become a leader because he got promoted. He got, if you read the rest of the book, he got promoted to second in charge in the kingdom. He was the highest person in the kingdom next to the king himself, and he was Jewish was not a Gentile, which kind of reminds me of a couple other cats that got promoted really high in the kingdom. Joseph comes to mind, doesn't he? From prison to the palace. Joseph was starting out as a slave. Matter of fact, he was in criminal jail for being accused of sexually assaulting Potiphar's wife, and he was innocent. Jamie will tell you the whole story. She's a Joseph connoisseur. So, so Jamie will tell you about Joseph. If you got any questions, see her after service. So Joseph was a tough dude. I mean, sold, left for dead by his brothers, sold into slavery by his family, accused falsely by his master's wife, and thrown into prison and forgotten by the baker and the butler for a long time. But God, when he wants to use you, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're going through. God has you covered. Amen? God doesn't need you to be a prophet, a preacher, a missionary, a, a, a singer, a pastor, an elder. He doesn't need you to have any of these so-called titles or qualifications. God will use people that are available and submissive to him that he wants to work through. Unlikely or not. Unsung or not. Hero or not. Gifted, quote-unquote, talented or not. God can use us. Amen. God wants to use us. He chooses. He chooses to use us. He can accomplish his divine purposes with us or without us, but he chooses in many cases to accomplish his purposes through us. The second thing is that the Lord accomplishes his purposes in the world, whether it involves kings, queens, common people, Little people, big people, rich people, poor people, black people, white people, Jews or Gentiles, male or female, God will accomplish his purpose. And we know that through Job chapter 42 and many, many others. The third point I wanted to make that we can walk this lesson out, that we can put it into action, is that God will accomplish his purpose. Even if we refuse to obey his will, God will raise somebody up. He'll either change our heart perhaps punishes in the process, or he'll bring someone else to take our place. But if we sit down on God, he will still accomplish his, accomplish his purpose. He will get it done, but we could miss out on our blessing. We can miss out on our rewards by being disobedient and refusing to submit to the Lord. So if God wants to do something, if you've been endowed with a calling, a purpose, a talent, a gift, a desire, an ability to do something to advance God's kingdom. Don't sit down. Don't quench the spirit. Don't refuse to do that because of fear or laziness or negligence. Let God use you. Let him have his way in your life. May he receive the glory from your life by you giving to him the glory due to his name. By you serving him. If, I, if you look at the account in Matthew 25 of those servants, he did not dis differentiate in terms of the quantity of reward between the person that he gave five talents to and the person that he gave two talents to. 
Both of them received a 100% return on investment. Both of them received a 100% manifold blessing, and they were equal. They both received the same reward. It's not about quantity. It's about quality when it comes to God. Amen? Whether you have two gifts, four gifts, eight gifts, ten gifts, zero gifts, so to speak. God has a work and a purpose he wants to accomplish, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't still be here consuming his precious air. He can just bring us on home if he doesn't have work for you. If, he, if you're still alive, you're alive for a reason. God has work that he still wants to complete in our lives. That's why we're still here. God wants to get something done through you. You may say, well, Pastor Will, I don't know what my calling is. I don't know what my gift is. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know what my contribution is. God will reveal to you what your work is. And your work may be for the time to continue to believe on him. I love what Jesus said over in John. He said, this is the work, this is the work of the Father, that you believe on him whom he has sent. I believe that's in John 5. So at the end of the day, all of us have a job to do, even if our job is to continue to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have faith in him and be faithful to him and be consistent to him and be holy for him and be righteous for him and to be sanctified by him. We still have that work to do, even if we don't have any other job title, even if we don't have another function. Don't let churchiosity consume you. Don't think that if you don't have a job at church, in your organization, in your denomination, in your house of worship, that it means you're not contributing. Witnessing is contributing. Living holy is contributing. Letting your light shine is contributing. Making a difference in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, on your job, in your household. That's contributing. That's working. That's doing the will of the Father. Amen? You don't have to have a worldwide ministry to do great things. The person that has a worldwide ministry will be accountable for the worldwide ministry. The person that just has the one gift that's just the usher or the janitor, they will be responsible for that, and they both will receive the same reward. What a mighty, only God could be that fair. Only God could be that great and magnanimous. Only God could be that beautiful and passionate and, and, and compassionate toward us and reward us based on what he has given us. Whether it's two mites or two million dollars, the Lord looks at our heart and he evaluates our heart when it comes to cheerfulness and generosity. Amen? Amen. He said the lady that gave the two mites gave more than all the rest of the people that were no doubt dropping in Benjamins, giving hundreds, thousands, gold coins, whatever they were doing. The Lord said it didn't come anywhere comparable to the lady with the two mites because she gave all she had. And that's all the Lord wants us to do is to give all we had. Last point, and I'll let you go. I put in my notes to share with you that God isn't in a hurry, but he'll fulfill his plans in due time. If you look at the timeline between the period that the Israelites were captive to the Babylonians and the changes that they went through. I'm looking at all these years they were in slavery. God could have raised up Ezra or Mordecai years and years ago. Even after she was selected for queen, it was another year before she took office. God waited. God was in no hurry. The book of Esther, I think, maybe covers six to eight years, period. 
God just seemingly slowly moves. You know, when you have eternity on your hands, you ain't got to be in no hurry, right? <laughs> Time is of the essence to us. Time is not an issue with God. Amen? He's been here forever. He's going to be here forever. I, I guess his attitude is, what's the hurry? I ain't got nowhere to go. <laughs> I don't have anything to do but what I'm doing. <laughs> what a beautiful thing that God can just take his time. And, he, and in the process, teaching us patience. Teaching us to value his work and his presence in our life and not to be in a hurry. Oh, boy, Jesus answered the Jews so beautifully when he says, you know, uh, in John, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Not I used to be, not I was, not I'm going to be, not I'm coming in to be. I am. I'm always present. God, everything God does is current. Let that sink in. Everything God does is, is in the immediate. He doesn't have to look at things from a historical or future perspective because time, distance, that means nothing to him because he's in control of all of that. Our Monday morning moment for this week, as I close, is whatever I, I, I made a I made a note thinking about thinking about Mordecai and thinking about how God uses little people and unsung heroes, so to speak. I wrote in my notes for a Monday morning moment, whether in great things or in little things, God is king. Whether in great things or little things. God is king of all things. God's king. He's over and controls and manages to his purpose all things. God is sovereign. That means he's without equal. He has no, he's not subordinate to anyone. He is provincial. He provides, his providence is for all of us, and he does it at his will. His sovereignty means that he's without contemporary. He's without a peer. He answers to no one. His word is immutable. His word is unchangeable. His word is unchallengeable. You know, in the, in the days, in, this book, in the book of Esther, when a king made a decree and he used his signet ring to seal it, that, that particular order was irreversible. It couldn't be changed. It couldn't be argued. It wasn't up for discussion. It wasn't up for vote. It wasn't up for debate. Well, that's just a human. Think about God. God's laws are irreversible. God's laws are unchangeable. God's ways can't be challenged. They can't be overruled. God's promises, they stick. They're not just contracts. They're covenants. He honors them even when we fail to honor our end of the deal. Even when we fall short, God comes through. He doesn't throw us out and discard us because we don't always keep our promise and hold up our end of the bargain. He still stands for us. So the Monday morning moment, whether in great things or little things, God is king. He is sovereign. I, I used 1 Samuel 14, 6, which I quoted last week, what Jonathan said to his young armor bearer. Here's what it says in the, king James, in the um, English Standard Version. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go. It may be that the Lord will work for us for, who knows, maybe, maybe, 
maybe Jonathan had read the book of Job before he wrote this because it just seems like an amazing, amazing quote. He says, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I like that part. Nothing can hinder the Lord. I love those kind of declarative statements. Those statements that are just, you know, just very definitive, very absolute, no vacillation, no wavering, just statements that are just solid. Doesn't that encourage you to know that God, when he makes a statement, it's beyond reproach, it's unchallengeable, it's irreversible, it's unstoppable. Thank you, Lord. We, Lord, we thank you for this word this morning. We ask that it challenge us and change us into your image, that we will do those things that are pleasing in your sight. Keep us strong. Keep us committed to you. Keep us focused on the things that are important. Essential truth from essential scripture. We honor and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.